Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is Dan Nexon. In this podcast, I'll be talking to David B. Coe, who is the award-winning author of 13 novels and the occasional short story. We'll be focusing on his most recent novel, Thief Taker, which is written under the pen name D.B. Jackson. Thief Taker is the first volume of the Thief Taker Chronicles, a series set in pre-revolutionary Boston that combines elements of urban fantasy, mystery, and historical fiction. The second volume, Thieves' Quarry, is currently in production and will be published in 2013. Writing as David B. Coe, he has published The Lon Tobin Chronicle, a trilogy that received the Crawford Fantasy Award as the best work by a new author in fantasy, as well as the critically acclaimed Winds of the Forelands Quintet and Blood of the Southlands trilogy. He has also written the novelization of director Ridley Scott's movie Robin Hood. David's books have been translated into a dozen languages. David is also the co-founder of and a regular contributor to the Magical Words Group blog, a site devoted to discussions of the craft and business of writing fantasy, and he is the co-author of How to Write Magical Words, A Writer's Companion. So uh, this is Dan Nexon, and I'm speaking to David Coe. Um, hi, David. Hi, Dan. It's good to be here. Yeah, And thanks for being on the podcast today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, David's new novel, uh, Thief Taker, which is actually written under a pseudonym, uh, D.B. Jackson. Could we start out maybe, uh, David, with your telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I am actually a former academic. I have a Ph.D. in United States history. Uh, that I earned some 20 years ago at this point, uh, almost. And um, I hail from the Northeast. I'm living now in uh, the Southeast, uh, where my wife, who is also an academic, teaches biology and works in the administration of her college. Um, and I've been writing fantasy fiction now for about 15 years. My first book came out 15 years ago this past May. Uh, and as you say, I've recently kind of come full circle and, and found a way to blend my old love of history uh, with my passion for writing fantasy, and so that's where Thief Taker came from. Uh, I am uh, the father of two teenage daughters who are both beautiful and brilliant and far smarter than their father, uh, and... Uh, that's that's about it. When I'm not writing, I like to play guitar and shoot pictures with my uh, with my Canon camera and take hikes and bird watch and stuff like that. So uh, you've mentioned, of course, that Thief Taker is uh, a departure in some respects from your earlier work, and you've written a couple of major uh, universes series of books. Do you want to just give us a brief rundown of those? Uh, sure. My my first trilogy uh, was called the the Lon Tobin Chronicle, uh, and um, it was the first book. Children of Amrid was was actually the first piece of 
uh, fiction that I ever published. Uh, and it was set in an imagined world in which magic flowed from uh, a link between mages and avian familiars, usually birds of prey, uh, either hawks or owls, that would perch on their shoulders or uh, help them fight their battles and stuff like that. And it was, it was a story I came up with originally when I was uh, probably 18 or 19 years old, and it sat in the back of my head and percolated and percolated, and I finally got a chance to write it after completing my Ph.D., uh, when I was done with that, I worked on a five-book series called The Winds of the Fallens, which is, uh, um, again, a, an imagined world, uh, lots of castle intrigue. My wife and I had visited uh, Wales one summer, and we took tours of all these castle ruins. And at the end of that, I was like, I want to write a book about castles. And the next thing I know, I had, I had five of them. Uh, and uh, the series that followed that up was called Blood of the Southlands, and it was... Uh, kind of a continuation of Winds of the Fallen. It was set in the same universe, different part of the, the world, um, but many of the issues were the same. Those Both series kind of revolved around issues of ethnic identity and uh, prejudice and racism uh, and ways in which that affects both kind of human interactions at the meta level, politics, government, and also human interactions at the personal level. Now, before we move on to Thief Taker, I have to ask about your uh, transition from getting a doctorate in history to becoming a full-time uh, fantasy writer. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Well, uh, I went to college thinking I would be a creative writing major and knowing that, that I loved to write stories and that that was, that was my passion. Uh, and somewhere along the way in college, I had a couple of bad experiences with writing courses, and my uh, parents kind of tried to impress upon me that writing fiction for a living was really not such a good idea, that it, it was a tough way to make a living. And uh, after doing this for 15 years, I can tell you that they were absolutely right. Uh, but I, uh, so I got away from it. I majored in American studies in college uh, and wrote a thesis uh, on history and politics and really enjoyed that. And I thought, well, maybe I can be a writer and an academic, and that would be a more suitable and more uh, practical use of my passion for writing. And so I went and I got started a Ph.D. program. I realized pretty soon into the Ph.D. program that I didn't want to be an academic, that really it was not the same thing as writing fiction, um, and that that level of storytelling didn't appeal to me as much. But I wanted to finish my degree. And upon finishing it, my wife said to me, I think I finished in May, and you know the academic calendar is such that you don't really apply for academic jobs until October or so. And my wife said to me, you know, since the day I met you, you've been talking about writing a novel. You have five months. Why not try writing some stories and start working on a book? And so I did. And one thing led to another, and I received a job offer to teach history on a Thursday afternoon. The following morning, I received a call from Tor Books. Uh, an editor there wanted to buy my first novel. Uh, and I had basically a weekend to decide if I wanted to pursue my academic career or if I wanted to go back to my dream of being a writer. And I chose writing and never really looked back. Uh, and as I say, thief, the thing about Thief Taker that has been so nice is I decided for a while, I guess, that writing 
fantasy meant I couldn't do history anymore, that I had to keep those aspects of my life separate. I'm not sure why I decided that. I'm sure it was an emotional decision made early on. But with Thief Taker, I finally broke down that barrier and said, you know, I can, I can engage my love of history and still follow this career path that I've chosen. And so Thief Taker has really been a very satisfying project for that reason. So why don't you uh, tell us a bit about the book itself? I mean, I suspect that most of our listeners uh, will have not read it, or at least we should assume that they haven't. Um, right. Hopefully many of them have, and they're tuning in because they really want to hear more about it from you. But let, why don't you give us the basic background we would need to have an informed conversation about it? All right. Thief Taker is what I call historical urban fantasy. Historical because it's set in pre-revolutionary Boston, uh, on the eve of the American Revolution. And I chose that period because it always fascinated me when I was a graduate student and also because uh, the other basic uh, concept of the series is that my lead character is a thief taker, uh, sort of a 18th century private detective. Um, what makes it fantasy is that he has access to magic. And so the series combines historical fiction, fantasy, the magical element, and mystery, and that's kind of the, the private investigator urban fantasy element. Um, each book in the series, uh, as it's planned right now, will be a standalone murder mystery set against the backdrop of some important historical event leading toward the American Revolution. And so book one opens on the night of the Stamp Act riots in August of 1765 uh, with a murder committed on that night. Now, the Stamp Act riots are real. Uh, the, the history that I weave in around the riots, the personalities involved, all of that is as accurate as I could keep it. The murder, of course, is a fiction that I've woven into the historical narrative. And so my character uh, has to investigate this murder, which quickly uh, gets caught up in the politics of the day, but also obviously has a very strong uh, magical element to it. My, the, the murder victim was killed by magic, and my character needs to find the person who did it. And that's basically the story. It's funny. I was trying to, to think of what I would call this genre when I was explaining it to uh, my wife, who is a fantasy and science fiction reader. And the best we could come up with was uh, colonial, was what was it? Magical colonial noir. Um, so I, think that, uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there is a very, or I think we tried tri cornered noir at one point. There is a very noirish, noirish, sorry, ad, aspect of this novel. I mean, there, there is a kind of hard boiled detective amongst various kinds of characters, many of whom are deeply corrupt. Uh, was, that a, was that a sort of intention, or did that flow from the period in which you set the novel? No, actually, it, it was very intentional, and, and actually the biggest challenge I had in writing the novel was that the, no, the noir voice that you refer to, that kind of hard-boiled edge that I tried to give the story, often puts me at odds with the vernacular of the day, which I'm also trying to capture to make my story historically authentic. And so actually I would say that the hardest part about writing this book was matching, on the one hand, the urban fantasy tone I was looking for, that, that hard-boiled detective novel feel, with something that would strike 21st century readers as at least somewhat authentically historical uh, in in the portrayal of Boston in the 1760s and the characters whom I um, 
protagonists' encounters, who include not only fictional characters, but also people like Samuel Adams and Thomas Hutchinson, who was the, the British lieutenant governor of the colony at the time, and James Otis, who was another uh, revolutionary figure. And so that was a constant balancing act that I was trying to work on. And it wasn't always easy, but the result I mean, the fact that you come up with, with tricorn noir, I love that. And that's, uh, that, that really fits exactly what I was shooting for with, with the book. Well, that you've anticipated my next question, but I, I do want to hear more about it, which is that you know, one of the fundamental problems whenever you read contemporary historical fiction or historical fantasy or whatever we want to call it, but works that are set in other times, uh, in times that have a, a very... Not a not a kind of diffuse realism, but are, are located in a specific moment in our own history, is that you have to balance this problem of having characters who both strike readers as authentic to the time, but also are characters they can relate to. Um, and how did you go about trying to get that balance in Thief Taker? Well, um, that's a good question, uh, and as I say, that was that was part of the challenge of writing the book. To a certain degree, I think as an author of historical fiction, um, I need to make, I need to find a balance between making concessions to my readers and making concessions to the historical figures who I'm including in my book. So on the one hand, I couldn't have, for instance, Samuel Adams speaking the way Samuel Adams would have spoken in actuality in 1765. Uh, you know, you go back to texts at the time and people are spelling words that are, that have twin S's in them, like access, uh, with twin F's instead. So, so there's, there is a language barrier, um, that kind of crops up immediately as you try to explore these historical issues. And as a writer, that's the first concession we have to make because we want our 21st century readers to be able to relate to the characters and to be able to relate to the story. Um, on the other hand, I also think that as an author of historical fiction, I owe something to those historical characters with whom I'm working. Um, and I have a responsibility, and I guess this is my academic self talking, but I have a responsibility to be as accurate as possible and to make as few concessions plot-wise, to my own narrative needs as I can. I want to be as true to the story as it unfolded in real history as I can. And so in dealing, in having my character deal with the historical circumstances surrounding those riots that, that kind of uh, flow through his entire investigation, I was captive to a time frame over which I had no control or very little control, because I was unwilling to, to compromise in order to, to accommodate my own plotting needs. Um, and I guess I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm wandering a little bit from the question you're asking, but I, I feel as though a writer in my position has to go back and forth and, and kind of make sacrifices on both ends and ultimately uh, find a way to be as true to history as possible while also not giving up on creating narrative tension and building believable characters and working a, a plausible setting into the book and doing all those other things as fiction writers that we like to do and need to do to please our readers. Uh, let me pause there and say, if, ask you if I've 
mangled the question or if you think I'm on the right track here. Well, actually, you've opened up new avenues that I'd like to explore, so even better uh, than mangling okay. <laughs> or getting it right. Um, so one of the things that struck me, I, I hope, I think we may wind up coming back to some of these, these issues when we get a little bit further into the meat of the book. But um, So you talked uh, in terms of being true to the historical record, both in terms of being true to characters, social contexts, etc., but also in terms of being true to the timeline, right? You didn't want to invent events that would disrupt the unfolding of 18th century Boston history. But that raises a, you know, a, a kind of other question, which is that you've introduced a world or you've introduced into our historical flow the ability to cast spells, right, uh, or right. conjure up spells, many of which are quite powerful in their implications. And to any reader who's concerned you know, with who has, you know, whether you have a background in alternate history uh, or whether you're somebody like me who does work on historical case studies and is concerned about contingency issues, you know, whether or not events had to be the way they were, whether or not slight changes could have altered them, one does have to wonder if in a, how in a world with conjuration we would have gotten to roughly the same place that we are in uh, circa mid to late 18th century. Right. Okay. Um yeah, and that's an interesting question, and and it's one. I mean, I think the continuity question is one, frankly, that that becomes so large that I'm not sure that someone writing historical fantasy is equipped to deal with it. I mean, it comes back to um, the, that that moment in in Ray Bradbury's *The Sound of Thunder* when when the moth shows up, at, you know, stuck in the guy's shoe, and he finds that the English language has been transformed because he killed the wrong moth at the wrong time in the course of history. Do you know the, the reference I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you could, you could safely say that what you're bringing up is an issue that I have neglected entirely. That, yes, if, if conjuring really exists in the alternate Boston that I have created, then my Boston really shouldn't bear any resemblance to the Boston that we wound up with, because the continuity issues going back time immemorial to whenever Conjuring first became viable would have changed the course of history. And who knows whether the British would have ended up in North America? Who knows whether they would have taken control of the eastern seaboard, or if the Dutch would have managed to do it, or somebody else? So to a certain degree, I'm going to beg the question. But then I come to what I can do as a historical fiction writer without going back and writing all, you know, creating alternate worlds again. Um, and that is, I tried to create a magical system that blended with historical circumstances as, as we know them. And so my conjurers, people like my, my lead character who can cast spells, my conjurers are constantly dealing with fears of witchcraft and trying to reconcile their own abilities with the superstitions that were rife in society, and in particular in religious society at the time. Uh, and so the way I camouflage this historical conceit of adding magic to the mix is I blend it with the Salem witch trials, with continued fear of witches as it developed through the 18th century. And try to make my magic seem as much a part of the landscape 
as anything else that my readers would encounter were they to go back to the 18th century Boston that we know. See, that's the um, – I'm sorry. Go on. Well, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me just say that, that we should also talk about thief-taking because, as it happens, there really were no thief-takers in Boston, mm-hmm. historically speaking. But I use history the same way, but, but we can get to that in a minute. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that that was the answer I was kind of hoping for because one of the things that I found really impressive about the way that you wove magic into the milieu was precisely how – this, the rarity of magic, the degree to which it is uh, repressed and suppressed by the authorities and by religious institutions and secular authorities, if that's a reasonable distinction in the period, uh, and, um, and also the kinds of things that magic seems to be used for in this world would make it fairly easy to retell a lot of European history where simply the things that people accused one another of doing to produce outcomes were, in fact, the things that they were doing. Uh, right. But that sort of raises questions about where you intend the magic system and the magic, the the sort of magic powers that you have in the novels to go uh, over the the sequence of them. Um, it seems fairly. I mean, I don't know. As a reader, I expect that that a big part of the the meta mystery of the the novels is in fact learning more about the conjuration system and who Uncle Reg is, the the ghost that appears whenever he, whenever Ethan conjures and that sort of thing. Is that right? And I think I think that certainly in the second book, and, mm-hmm. and so far I've only written the second book. Um, the magic. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. I'm a firm believer in when I write fantasy novels mm-hmm. that magic needs to have consistent rules and limitations and costs, and it needs to be something that remains the same and does not expand or contract as the author's narrative exigencies might demand. So once I establish the rules of a magic system, um, I really need to stick to those rules across volumes as well as within a single book. But that said, in the second book, Ethan discovers things about his own powers that he hadn't known before. And he also is able to make better use of Uncle Reg as an ally in the work he does. And Reg's role in the second book is far greater than his role in the first book. And that was something that I wanted to do and that I plan to develop further as the series continues. So we've talked about the problem of, you know, magical counterfactualism, as it were, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, but I also want to come back to some other issues of credibility, authenticity, and also, while not losing reader engagement, one of the things that I think is particularly uh, difficult for authors writing this idiom to deal with are, given the nature of the contemporary audience, are issues surrounding the status of women. Um, you know, and particularly this is in, in Thief Taker, you go out of your way to make sure that we have some uh, in, uh, strong, well-developed, uh, but different, uh, you know, not all burly strong, you know, sword-wielding, what have you, but, you know, strong, right. that is, in well-rounded and, and thoughtful female characters. Um, and I noticed that a number of those characters are widows. Um, and vague, my vague recollection is that in... Uh, English common law uh, and in English 
legal institutions that being a widow did in fact afford you a fair amount of freedom uh, uh, to to self actualize in a way that that women didn't normally have. And was that a, is that right? And is that a deliberate move on your behalf in order to to provide us with some characters who who can have the kind of social freedoms that that we might not associate with the period? Yes, it's, yes, it's absolutely true, and it's something that I did deliberately. Uh, certainly with the character of uh, Kenise, who is Ethan's uh, girlfriend, for lack of a better word. Um, talk about using a non-18th century <laughs> um, term. But um, there, once a woman was married and lost her husband, which was fairly common. I mean, you know, uh, mortality rates in this time from diseases, be it from pleurisy or smallpox or what they call distemper, um, all these things, they, they happen with some frequency, plus there were wars being fought uh, in, the, in the 1750s and into the 1760s. Um, and so widows were fairly common uh, in colonial America. And as you say, once they had been married and lost their husbands, they had far more freedom to express themselves economically. Uh, and to kind of take advantage of the freedom that came from being, for instance, a business owner if they inherited their husband's business or from being independently wealthy if they were just left large amounts of money. Uh, and so I wanted to take advantage of that because I didn't want to write necessarily female characters who were entirely beholden to their spouses. Now, that said, I think it's very easy for us looking back and kind of taking uh, a, a kind of cursory historical gloss on the period to overestimate the degree to which the lives of women were circumscribed uh, by custom and society in the period in which I'm writing. Women had more freedom than, than is generally acknowledged uh, because, again, it, it in order to get at that freedom, in order to understand the more complex gender dynamics at the time, you really need to delve much deeper into the history. Uh, one of the professors I worked with when I was getting my degree wrote a book about uh, sexual mores during the, you know, during the course of American history. Uh, and one of the things he points out is that in 18th century uh, America, young couples were far more sexually active and far more engaged in that way than we would generally acknowledge given what we think we know about the period. Uh, and so to a certain degree, I was using widows as a way of giving my female characters uh, more chances at agency and self-actualization. But also I was drawing upon the fact that women at the time just had more freedom than we, than we might think. So um, one of the things that you mention in your, I think it's your afterword, uh, is that uh, this story was not originally set in uh, an historical uh, imaginary, right, but was set in a, in a more typical fantasy world. Uh, right. It's interesting because, I mean, I think it's a sign of, of how well constructed it is that I have a lot of difficulty imagining the story taking place uh, uh, anywhere other than in, uh, if not colonial America, at least in, you know, Enlightenment uh, Europe and its colonies. So, so could you tell us a little bit about what was involved in that transition and why this wound up being, uh, uh, going from being, I guess, p- 
pure quote unquote fantasy to historical fiction with a fantastic element? Well, I made the transition, quite frankly, at the urging of my editor, who ever since we've been working together, and he and I, he's been my editor for every book I've ever written, uh, he's wanted me to go back to my historical background and take advantage of it, because he enjoys history and he enjoys historical fiction. The idea for Thief Taker originally came from a footnote in a history book about Australia, uh, that I had been reading. The book is called The Fatal Shore by, uh, by Robert Hughes. And my wife and I were getting ready to go live for a year in Australia. She was going to be on sabbatical from her academic position. And, uh, and so we were reading this book. And in reading a history of Australia, which, because Australia began as a British penal colony, would have touched on, um, on British law enforcement history, the author of the book wrote this long discursive footnote about a thief taker named Jonathan Wild. Jonathan Wild built a criminal empire for himself by um, basically having men in his employ steal things, give them to him so that he could sell the most valuable and then turn around and return the rest to its rightful owner for a fee. So basically, he was a thief taker who was creating his own business by having his his uh, employees steal on his behalf. And so he was the inspiration for the the main antagonist to my to my lead character. And when I told my editor, you know, here's here's where the story came from, he he immediately said, well, why did you write it as a fantasy then? Why not write it as a historical fantasy and do all the things you want to do with the story, but set it in a real-world setting and use real-world thief-takers and stuff like that? So that was what I ended up doing because um, I began to see the sense in his argument, and I and he originally wanted me to set it in England, and I didn't want to do that, but that's when I came up with the idea for sending it in colonial America, and all of a sudden I was able to imagine writing a book that was drawing upon my historical background, and, and the appeal was very great. It was a hard thing to do because I loved, just loved, the world I had created for the original Thief Taker. And someday I hope to go back to it and write some different stories in that world. Um, but I had to adjust my narrative to um, match historical circumstance, and so I started searching through colonial history for a period and for a set of events that would work well with the story as I had written it. And when I found the Stamp Act riots and kind of remembered the history of them and started exploring it more deeply, I realized that the story lent itself to that historical circumstance far better than I ever could have imagined. It was, it was a perfect fit, and it, I was able to just kind of slot everything in just the way I wanted to, and perhaps inadvertently it, I, I had written a story in the imaginary world that followed some form of American history. But whatever the reason, the stories work together, and the second book works even better. Um, and I had already started the second book as, a, as an alternate world fantasy as well and was able to make that uh, transition just as easily. One of the things I enjoyed about um, Thief Taker, uh, and I don't know where you intend to go with these themes, but is that you give us an opportunity, particularly us meaning American readers, to um, get some insight into why 
the revolutionary position is not necessarily the obvious one and why the loyalist position uh, is both one that's emotively powerful for many people and also, you know, has a logic behind it. Um, so it, it serves that kind of purpose, I think, of helping us to – helping to – demystify something of our own history. Is that something you intend to pursue at at greater length? It certainly seems by the end of the novel you're set up for a running debate over the merits of uh, separation. Yeah, I I think that it's something I want to pursue. I wanted Ethan, my lead character, to a certain degree I wanted him to be a character who my readers would like but also find challenging to them. Um, and so there are lots of things about him. The fact that he is, uh, he's lame. He has an injury from when he was an ex-convict. Another thing about him that, that readers might not respond to well at first. But he was, he was a convict. Uh, he was on a, a, a labor plantation for a while. He lost a pe- part of his foot to gangrene. And so he has, he, he, he's an older character and he's scarred and he's imperfect. And he's a Tory. He's a, he's a supporter of the British Empire, and, and as I say, I, I was looking for ways in which I would be challenging my readers, even as they came to know and like my lead character. Um, but I also wanted to be able to engage in some discussion of the political issues of the day, and his being a Tory allowed me to do that and allowed me to introduce Samuel Adams, who my readers are going to be predisposed to like because of who and who he is and what he represents, and have this historical icon be at odds with the character who they're supposed to like and be sympathetic to. Um, and I think all of these things help to deepen the story and deepen my readers' engagement with the story. Um, by the same token, I think you can also see by the end of this book, and certainly it, it continues in the second book, that Ethan's thinking on the question of, of rebellion and separation from England is evolving. Um, and it continues to evolve, and that evolution accelerates in the second book, which coincides with the occupation of Boston by um, British troops in 1768. Uh, and so I want to continue the discussion, but I also want to eventually move Ethan over to the side of the angels, <laughs> as it were. Um, I should also say that while... I appreciate what you said about it, and I feel that it was a good decision. Uh, I've taken some heat for it from some readers in Amazon reviews and other places uh, who find Ethan's loyalties not being with the rebel cause um, disturbing, and, and they don't they don't like it. They're they're uncomfortable with it, which actually surprised me that they would, of all things in the book, there's lots for people to be uncomfortable with that they should latch onto that. I, I found it very surprising. Hmm. I wish I had something profound to say about that, but uh, you know, I guess you've written a book about ethnicity and nationalism in an imaginary world, so it shouldn't be surprising if you know you you experience some blowback on uh, by by touching one of the the holy grails of American nationalist discourse. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> um, so um what are the th- so so I really did very much enjoy this book um but uh, but I I was concerned that that Ethan struck me as not necessarily the brightest bulb on the planet at times <laughs> Uh, and, and there are times in which I wonder uh, if uh, a smarter thief taker might have picked up on the hints uh, and the clues that you drop a little more quickly. Um, 
Is that a, is that a deliberate move by you, or, 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 or how do you think about his his detecting process, his 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 thinking process about as he discovers unravels the mystery? I think that a character like Ethan is can only be as smart as the author who created him, and I think that in this case, what you see is probably more an author who is writing full-scale mystery for the first time who wasn't as light-handed as he should have been in uh, in dropping clues uh, than it is any intentional denseness on my character's part. I mean, you know, as I say, Ethan is an imperfect uh, character, as, as any character ought to be, and I'm sure. And I do know that there were times when I wanted him to be somewhat obtuse uh, because... Sometimes it's fun for your reader to have information that your character doesn't yet have and to be saying, you know, what is he going to figure this out? Is he going to get it? Uh, but there are other times I think that I just, you know, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a perfect writer yet and, and can't imagine that I ever, ever will be. I've, I've yet to meet one. And I think that what you're picking up on is probably uh, more to do with, with my own creative process than anything I intended to do with, with Ethan. As a character. Well, I will say to, to walk that back a little bit, my understanding of, of mystery writing, which is very limited, uh, is that, but nonetheless, what I understand is that one of the most difficult decisions to make is not only how much, how much to drop to the reader so that the reader can figure out autonomously what's going on, but also when to make that pivot from we don't know what's going on to, oh, my God, when is the protagonist going to figure out what's going on uh, because not doing so puts him or her in jeopardy. And, you know, so I think you can make a plausible case that that the decisions you make on that are are fairly good ones. Um, I will say also um, that uh, this is that you include probably the only example of an evil overlord uh, explanation uh, which is narratively plausible. Um, so when we actually come to every mystery that I've ever read that's embedded in another genre, let alone mysteries that are within the mystery genre, always has that kind of confessional speech in it at some point. Uh, and uh-huh. The one that occurs in Thief Taker is completely justified within uh, the sequence of action, right? It doesn't cost uh, the 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 the, the uh, the uh, antagonist anything to make it, uh, and his motivation for having made it also makes sense. So I wanted to applaud you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I have to say that I've taken a little bit of abuse for that in reviews. I mean, I should say the reviews for my book have been overwhelmingly generous, and I'm, I'm very happy with them. And even on Amazon, where where you know you have no control whatsoever over what's going to happen to your book, um, I've been very fortunate to get a lot of very good reviews and very few poor ones. But the few criticisms I have gotten, uh, one of them has focused again and again on that on that speech at the end, and that, oh, look, he, he resorted to that. Can't we have a mystery that doesn't resort to that? And looking back on it, I wish I had found another way to convey the information. But the truth is, if you make, if in writing a, his, uh, a mystery, you create an effective nemesis for your investigative character, too much of his plotting would go unseen by the reader if you didn't have that sort of confessional at the end. Uh, and so it's, it's, it, the reason it's a trope in the mystery field is that there are just so many ways to explain everything that's happened. And just as my readers objected to the fact that I, I 
Twitter, some of my readers objected to the fact that I put this kind of a speech in there. I would have been savaged in reviews had I not put it in there because they would have been coming and saying, well, how did he do this? And why did he do that? And, you know, how, how do you explain away this? So it's, it's one of these damned if you do, damned if you don't aspects of writing mystery. Um, is it a- and... Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I just it sounds like there's no way to win uh, for someone in, in you know for an author who is is well read and has a loyal group of readers, um, which does raise a, a broader question. I and mean, one of the things that so so in preparation for this interview, I was poking around on your website and on the multiple kind of blogs and online presences that you maintain, you know, which is pretty common now for anybody in the business. But I was particularly impressed because you run a, a, a collaborate or you don't, not run you are involved in a collaborative website called magicalworlds.net. Is, did I get the URL correct? Uh, it's actually magicalwords, W-O-R-D-S, I, uh, see, I, net. I yeah. fell for the pun in remembering it, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so magical magicalwords.net, uh, which is really intended uh, to help to build kind of community, both with people who are uh, who are who are published writers, but also with people who are trying to get into the business or at various stages of the business, and I thought that was really interesting. What what drove you to kind of really engage in that kind of community building activity? Well, um, it came out of uh, a stint I did as an instructor at the South Carolina Writers Workshop. Um, annual convention. This was back in 2007. I've, I've now been a, an instructor for, for the South Carolina workshop uh, on three different occasions and, and love teaching writing, and I do teaching in other venues as well. Um, and I'm currently engaged as a mentor to a student at, a, at a, another university. And I really enjoy teaching writing. And I, I really, I mean, you hear people talking about, you know, kind of giving back to the industry that gave them their start. And I really believe in that. And uh, was, I was helped out by some established professionals when I first started writing and wanted to be able to do the same for aspiring writers and writers who were just starting out in their careers. Um, but the, the story of the site is that while I was at this convention, uh, at this writer's conference teaching, uh, I was introduced by my agent to another of her writers who was also there uh, teaching at the conference. Her name is Faith Hunter. Uh, she writes the Jane Yellow Rock uh, uh, urban fantasy series uh, and has also uh, written several other series and has written under various pseudonyms. She is a longtime professional and just a wonderful person, and is similarly interested in teaching and, and devoting herself to giving back to the industry. And she and I hit it off. It was like meeting a, a, another sibling, uh, one I'd never known I had. And we spent the evening chatting and laughing and, and talking about our experiences uh, during the conference teaching students. And we decided that we wanted to collaborate on some project, and we came up with the idea of a blog site that would be devoted to the type of teaching we had just done for the weekend. Uh, and we engaged a couple of other authors to join us as we were starting out uh, and launched Magical Words in January of 2008. Uh, and at this point, you know, we've been going for four and a half years. We have a huge following. We have at least a dozen different writers involved uh, either on a regular basis or on a kind of a, a, a semi-regular guest appearance basis. Uh, we have a book out called How to Write Magical Words, A Writer's Companion. Um, and uh, it has become this this thing that is so far beyond what we ever imagined it would be, and yet we, we still enjoy it and we still are 
uh, gaining new readership every month, and it's been great. So one of the things you've talked about recently, uh, which was of particular interest to me, because it, as you begin your discussion of it, has a resonance with uh, the experience not just of being a fiction writer, but also being a nonfiction writer, or social sciences, the humanities, or the natural sciences, is this problem of kind of scooping and, uh, you know, of what do you do when you discover that your great idea, your great hook, uh, has already been published? Uh, and I, right. I thought you might elaborate a little bit on that, and I wanted to ask you a, a couple questions. Uh, sure. It, it grew out of I was uh, doing a series of posts on um, ideas and where ideas come from and what writers do with them once they find them and how we go about turning an idea into a published novel and the, the difficulties and processes involved in doing that. And one of the things I found again and again from our readership in their comments to my first two posts in the series was this, this kind of common underlying fear that all of them had, what if somebody steals your idea? Or if not steals, what if you find out that you have this great idea, but somebody else has already written it or is about to come out with it? What, what do you do? Uh, and so I devoted the post that you're speaking of, which is this week's post, uh, to that topic. And what it came down to for me was something that I was told by my advisor in graduate school when I was still writing history, and I was worried as a as a aspiring historian of uh, I was I was worried about having my dissertation idea uh, scooped from me, taken from me by a more established professional. And what he said to me, and and it really did resonate, was he said, "If you're thinking that your dissertation idea can be scooped in that way, you're thinking too narrowly." about your topic. And I think what he meant was we bring to the work we do, be it fictional or non-fictional, um, artistic or, or, or scholarly, a host of human experience, of, of emotion, of um, idiosyncratic approaches to, to knowledge and wordplay and everything else that inform everything we do. And that is as much a part of the writing and the research and everything else as that original spark of, of inspiration that led us to the idea. And what he was basically saying to me was, ideas are great, but the devil is in the the execution. It's, it's, it's in what you do with the idea and how you make it into something that is going to be utterly original. Because five different scholars could look at the material you're looking at and write completely different dissertations. And the same is true with fiction. Five different writers could be given an idea for writing about thief takers in colonial America. And you know, I'm the only one who's going to come up with, with Thief Taker, the book that, that you have in your hands. And those other four are going to come up with something similar in conception, but entirely different in execution. Um, and so that was the point of the essay, and I was hoping that I was going to put to rest some of these concerns that, that our, our aspiring readership has over at the site. 
I think there's also, though, another issue lurking behind that, um, which I don't... So in the speculative fiction, one of the things that people often talk about in the speculative fiction or the science fiction genre is the degree Mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of the density of the intertext, right? The density of the dialogue between works. Um, And given that the genre has existed in more or less its contemporary form for decades, if not a century, that density is pretty darn thick. Uh, And it can make it very difficult for people who are very smart and creative, but trying to kind of break into it to figure out how they can slot in, right? Or what makes for an idea that's good enough to slot into it. Right. Um, and I think that's particularly exacerbated in some ways by you know the the critical industry that's grown up around uh, the genre. Now I'm actually ashamed to say that I'm less familiar with contemporary fantasy. One of the reasons I agreed to do this gig was to force me to read more of it. Um, <laughs> and uh, but um, to what degree is that operating in, in fantasy now? I know that that the last time I was a serious consumer of newly written fantasy was maybe. 20 years ago, and um, I've gotten up to speed now, but there are, there's just been a proliferation of genres and subgenres, right, within fantasy. Um, yes, there has, and I think that that has, I think that's made it easier on aspiring writers in a way. Not that, I mean, in other ways, this is a much more difficult market than the market I broke into 15, 20 years ago. Um, there are fewer venues, there are more authors. Competing for shelf space, there's less shelf space. Uh, I mean, there's it's just it's a much harder market. But in terms of the idea marketplace, uh, I think the proliferation of of subgenres, and, and in particular the growth of uh, urban fantasy, the growth of YA uh, markets, so that. There's there's a niche now for authors who are looking to write for younger writers and who are writing about anything from from wizards to zombies to vampires to werewolves to post-apocalyptic America, whatever whatever your choice. Um, there are so many more marketing ideas out there, marketing slots that people can fit an idea into. And I think that the proliferation of genres has made it so that you have, at this point, this cornucopia of terrific fantasy ideas. Uh, I remember the first time I read an urban fantasy. I can't remember which title it was. I think it might have been Jim Butcher's... um, Harry, one of Jim Butcher's Harry Dresden books. If I could just Rachel. interrupt you for a second. Our listeners may not actually know what urban fantasy is, so maybe you could give us a potted description. Uh, boy, yeah, that's a tough one. Urban fantasy is essentially um, books written, uh, for the most part, and this is one of the things that sets Peace Taker apart, but for the most part, urban fantasies are contemporary real-world settings, so say they're set in New York City or in Boston or in Chicago or something like that, uh, they tend to have a mystery element and they tend to have a strong magical or paranormal element. So there, are, there might be uh, conjuring involved, wizards doing spells and stuff like that, or there may be the involvement of, as I say, werewolves and vampires or demons of some sort. Um, and usually you have a first-person or close third-person uh, narrator, single point of view, who is trying to solve a mystery or 
fight the demons or the vampires, and it's it's kind of that person's story with a somewhat noir voice, but a very strong magical element. Do you think that pretty much covers it? Uh, well, I, I'm sure you can define it better than I can. As I <laughs> copped to earlier, um, you know, back when I was reading fantasy, those novels exist, but they weren't called anything. Um, right, right. Uh, but, but what I was going to say is I still remember reading my first book that fell into this, this sort of subgenre and being blown away by the originality of it. Uh, and as I say, I think it might have been Jim, Jim Butcher is a very successful urban fantasy author who has a series out called The Harry Dresden Files. That are basically uh, uh, he's a private investigator, a wizard who operates in Chicago and solves mysteries um, and fights, you know, vampires and werewolves and stuff like that. Um, and it's it was yeah, it, it was revelatory. And I remember reading it and thinking, I want to write more of this. This, this is I want to read more of this, and I want to write this. This is fun stuff. Um, and you have uh, what's called steampunk, which is kind of uh, again, it's a, fan, a kind of a blend of fantasy and science fiction that takes unusual technologies and inserts it into uh, late 19th and early 20th century venues, or even even earlier than that sometimes, that have no business having the types of technologies they have. Um, but this steampunk uh, was kind of a big thing 10 or 12 years ago, and it's still hanging on, but, it, but that's when it's got its start. And again, it's it's different. It's kind of funky to read. Um, stuff, the stuff you encounter in it is utterly unexpected, and yet the stories hold together beautifully and have this incredibly magical feel to them. Uh, so there's, there's just, it seems to me there's tons of possibilities now that makes it easier for people with uncommon ideas to find ways to express themselves. So this gets at what you sort of, I think, mentioned both in your original blog post and then some of the commentary you have in, or some of the, your contributions to the comments thread, which is that um, the increased number of genres or the increased number of, oh, this work is like that kind of work, right? The, number, the increased number of works that I'm not articulating myself very well. But the very fact that there are works that do things that are similar is actually a positive from a marketing perspective, right? It is. And especially, I mean, right now the publishing industry, and we could, we could talk about the publishing industry for you know, hours and not exhaust the topic right now. But the publishing industry right now, obviously, is going through huge upheavals and technological changes. And publishers are a little more timid than they were maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and so while they are exploring these new genres, they're doing so in a, in a very kind of dip-your-toe-in-the-water way. And to the degree to which an editor can go to his, uh, his publishing higher, you know, hierarchy and say, um, this is just like Harry Dresden, but with a historical angle, and it's set in colonial Boston. And, and that's pretty much how we pitched Thief Taker when it was finally written. It was it was Harry Dresden, that character from uh, from Jim Butcher's book. Harry Dresden meets Samuel Adams. That was a terrific pitch because it told them where it fit in the market, and it also told them what was new about it, the ways in which it drew upon existing marketing trends, and yet also did something a little bit different. And because publishers are being a little more cautious, that it's like this, but it does this approach to marketing, both for an editor pitching to his higher-ups or an agent pitching to an editor or an author pitching to an agent, that helps us 
fit our work into the larger commercial structure, but also establish what makes it different and and appealing. Um, and uh, in today's marketplace, that seems to be working very well. Well, uh, it certainly seems to have worked well for Thief Taker, uh, which uh, I want to stress as we uh, as we uh, close down that this is a really fun and interesting book. Uh, I'm sort of a sucker for uh, historical settings with fantastic elements, so uh, it definitely appealed to me. But I think uh, our listeners will really enjoy it, and uh, it certainly promises, I think, to be a, a really engaging, interesting series over its entire arc. So thanks for coming uh, for coming on and for. Uh, uh, talking about it with us. Dan, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. It's been fun talking to you. All right. So long. Bye-bye. This episode of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy was recorded 14 August 2012 and featured David B. Coe.